Please take a Bible, if you will, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew today, Matthew chapter 26, as we uh, think about the topic of giving thanks to God. There was an event that takes place in Matthew 26. It's also recorded in John chapter 12 and Mark chapter 14. Uh, And that was an expression of gratitude and honor uh, bestowed on Jesus by a woman named Mary, not his mother Mary, but Mary, the, uh, the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha. And Jesus said that what she did in this story would be spoken of through all of time. Matthew chapter 26, it involves some very expensive perfume in the text it calls it ointment. I decided to do a little research uh, and find out what is the most expensive perfume today. So if you want to put this on your Christmas list, um, the most expensive perfume, and I mean, it's considerably higher than any other, is called Imperial Majesty. Only uh, 20 bottles were produced, and that's because it's $215,000 a bottle. <laughs> Got that on your list? Or you put it on your list to uh, tell your husband. So don't run out right after church and try to order that. That's the most expensive perfume in the world at the present time. And let's read from Matthew 26, beginning in verse 6, about this woman and the deed that she did. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have hungry souls, and you tell us we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we ask now that you would nourish us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, this account is in Matthew 26, which we just read, also in John chapter 12, the verse eight verses, and Mark chapter 14. They give some different details that I will include without us turning to those passages, but I wanted you to know where they are coming from. John tells us that this is six days before the Passover. In other words, Jesus would be crucified the following Friday. This is now Saturday evening when this event takes place. The next day would be when he would enter into Jerusalem, what we call Palm Sunday. They are at the home of Simon the leper. Perhaps Simon was one who had been healed previously by Jesus. And John also mentions that this was a grand supper to honor Jesus. So this was not something thrown together at the last minute with some leftovers. Uh, This was planned. This was a special occasion. Lazarus was present, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, as well as his sisters, Martha 
and Mary are there helping to serve the food. Now it's Mary, we are told in the other Gospels, who comes with this alabaster bottle of ointment. Alabaster and such a bottle would be a semi-transparent stone. And it was a bottle so that it could only be opened once. It had to be broken to get at the contents. Mark tells us that the perfume was made from pure nard. Nard is an oil, an extract from the root of a plant grown in the east, probably in India. And Matthew, Mark, and John all note that it was of great value. In fact, John says that it was worth at, at least about 300 denarii. That would be the equivalent of a working man's wage for an entire year. So by today's standards, it would have been perhaps twenty to $30,000 worth of ointment. Where she got it, we don't know. Perhaps it had been handed down to her. Perhaps it had been inherited from someone. We do know that given the quality and the value of it, it would have been a certain amount of financial security for her to have this in her possession. What does she do? Without rereading the passage, she anoints Jesus with this perfume. She puts it on his head. She puts it on his shoulders and, and elsewhere. And she takes this very valuable thing, this ointment, and she gives it to Jesus. I believe there's no doubt this was very premeditated. The jar of something so expensive would not be something you would carry around with you to normal occasions. So I, I, I think there's no doubt she intended to do this. The others, the, the emphasis becomes how the others in the room, in the house, view this. And verse 8 tells us the response of the disciples. They become indignant. They're angry. They're upset. They viewed her action as irresponsible, extravagant, financially immature, and even uncharitable as to what could have been done with this valuable perfume. And apparently they assume that Jesus will share their opinion and that he will not find her actions acceptable. It was bound to be offensive. After all, had not Jesus told the rich young ruler, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor? Had he not said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Obviously Jesus would not approve of this extravagant, wasteful action. And so wherever Mary glances in the room, there are looks of disapproval. In fact, it's only in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, that John tells us that it's not just the looks of indignation, but one of the disciples speaks up, and that is Judas. And Judas says, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, John tells us, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he was the treasurer for the disciples. He kept the money back. <clears throat> and he, John says that they found out later he used to help himself to what was put into it. I don't know if you have a copy of the Gospel Transformation Bible. I love the notes that are compiled there by the various editors. And it said this, the notes said this about these particular verses. It said the, the contrast between Mary and Judas could not be bolder. Mary reclines at Jesus' feet in adoring love, offering extravagant devotion, anointing him for his burial. But Judas sits in condescending arrogance, not only questioning Mary's action, but judging Jesus for being willing to accept such a gift. 
the editor goes on, one is a worshiper, one is a thief. One gives sacrificial honor, the other seeks personal gain. One demonstrates the way of grace, the other the way of sin. Well, only one person comes to her defense, and thankfully it's the only one who matters, and that's Jesus. In verse 10, he says, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing to me. They are wanting to blame Mary. Jesus makes it clear that their criticism of her is really criticism of him because their attack of her deed is really an argument with him. Mark verse 7, Mark 14, 7 says, For you always have the poor with you. You ever heard people say that? I've heard it, and typically it's said as a reason not to help the poor. As though Jesus was saying, well, you always have the poor with you. You know, that's just the way it is. That's just a fact of life. Well, that's not the point there. Because he's talking about timing. He goes on and he says, you always have the poor with you whom you can help at any time, but you do not always have me. So he's contrasting the fact that you should help the poor and there's always an opportunity. Any given day you can help the poor, but there was only a window of opportunity, a brief window of opportunity for Mary, in this case, to honor him. What do I mean? Well, we speak about timing in life. We talk about timing in business, timing in investments, timing in music, timing in athletics. Uh, we know that timing is very important. You know that timing is important in your service to Christ? It's very important. The Apostle Paul said, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, making the most of every opportunity. And the way he speaks about that is that we know there are points of obedience for us as followers of Christ that are day-to-day. -day. They're continual. Using the means of grace, prayer, worship, uh, obedience and so forth, a supportive fellowship in our lives, um, obeying the law, uh, God's law, the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, uh, of seeking to follow him out of love for Christ. But there's also opportunities that come along just every once in a while. And if we pass up that opportunity, typically it doesn't repeat itself. Uh, I remember years ago when my father passed away an elder in this church called me I was in Alabama with my mother it seemed like it was the very next day he died one night and this elder called me and said well I just wanted to call and talk to you and tell you to be praying for you and I said I really appreciate you calling and he said this he said well thankfully you only go through this once well he could have waited he could have waited a week or two or a month but I think he knew no it's important I want to call right now I want to call today let me tell you about a few things that happened to me. That I'm trying to demonstrate this. Um, you, you may think I've lost my mind with, in some of these examples, but I was going down Riverside Drive a couple of weeks ago, and I was at the corner of Riverside and Tom Hill. And I looked over to the left there by the McDonald's, and there's a bus stop. And I could see a woman, a uh, middle-aged African-American woman, kind of running down the sidewalk coming from the other side. She was trying to get to that bus. It was quite obvious. She was waving her, waving her arms. And I, I watched the bus driver sit there, and I saw the bus driver see her. And then the bus left while she was standing right 
at the street. So I thought, what if that was my daughter or my wife or somebody in our church? So I pulled in, the, I said, how long are you going to have to wait for the next bus? She said about 30 minutes. I said, get in. And I want you to know, and I've got a V8, I could not catch that bus on Riverside Drive. So as far as speed limits, they were gone that day by your pastor and by the bus driver. And I said, where's the bus going? I said, where will the next stops be? And she said, well, they're going to go down. It's going to turn up Pierce, and then it's going to go into Pleasant Hill. And then, so I said, we've got a church in Pleasant Hill. Do you live in Pleasant Hill? And uh, she said, no, I live in South Macon. I said, well, yeah, Strong Tower Fellowship. Well, then I was back. We finally caught up to the bus at the corner of Pierce and Ingleside. <laughs> and I was flying, I mean, to get there. But I thought, okay, why, what, why do you even mention that, Chip? I felt that was an opportunity right then. And I, my view of witnessing for Christ is to, to identify with Christ as early as possible in a conversation. What do you mean identify with Christ? I just mentioned the church. Now, that, did we get into the gospel? No. Did we talk about the meaning of Christ's death on the cross? No. But maybe that woman perhaps will remember somebody associated with the church in Strong Tower in Pleasant Hill, named Strong Tower in Pleasant Hill, gave her a ride. I was talking to an Uber driver in New York City two weeks ago. I was by myself, and he was taking, took me back to where we were staying, and he was 28, and he was from Yemen. And I complimented his English because he told me he'd only been here less than five years. And I said, well, I, I used to teach international students, and I, I want to tell you, you're doing really well with English because he didn't know any before he came. And I said, some have studied English much longer than you and, and are not, cannot speak it near as well as, as you are speaking. So um, I told him we had been to church that morning. And I said, you ever been to church here in, in New York? And he said, no, I'm Muslim. And I said... Well, tell me, when Muslims gather at the, and he interrupted and said, the mosque, you know, and I, I said, right, at, at the mosque, do you worship? You call it worship. And he looked befuddled, and I said, I know that you pray, and someone teaches from the Koran, but so we started talking about, I said, I, I have no problem with other religions coming here at all. I said, I just don't think the government should show deferential treatment to any particular religion. Because I didn't say this, because in the marketplace of ideas, Christianity will always win out. Truth will. Just don't show deferential treatment to anyone. And so we talked, and I shook his hand when I got out, and I told him I was a pastor, because he said, are you a professor? When I said I'd taught these students, I said, no, I'm a pastor of a church. That's what led into that. I said, have you ever been to a church? He said, no. And then he told me he was Muslim. It is interesting. I said, why did you come to New York City? He said, because I couldn't drive. <laughs> now, you interpret that a lot of different ways. He knew if he came to Atlanta, he couldn't get a job if he couldn't drive. Yeah, so, okay. I'm at Subway this past Friday. As long as I'm telling you these meaningful stories that you'll never forget. I spent half my life in fast food places, and so I... Um, there's nobody else in there but me. It's like 12.15, which was a surprise. And the young woman, who I assume is not here, but if you are, I, you can correct me afterwards if I didn't say it right. Anyway, I, yes, I want flatbread, wheat, so, all right. Then she says, have you got a big weekend plan? I said, well, we've got a daughter and a couple of grandkids coming. 
And then I knew, okay, I can stop right there, or do I want to go a little further? But I'm also a pastor, and so a lot of the weekend is, is getting ready for Sunday. Oh, see, identifying with Christ. Where do you preach? I said, at First Presbyterian Church. I knew she wouldn't know where it was. No one ever knows where it is. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not joking. Unless you come here, I've talked to people who've lived in Macon 40 years now. They'll say, where are you, Pastor? I'll say, First Presbyterian Church. And it's like, where's that? I say, it's across from the Grand. The Grand, oh, yeah, 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 right, the tall steeple, right. But if you have no reason to come in here, I think most people don't think, know where it is. So I said, let's well, from the ground. I said, do you have a church home? I intentionally don't say, didn't say, uh, are you a member of a church? Because in the South, it seems like everybody's a member of a church, but that doesn't mean they ever, ever go near a church. And so I said, I asked, do you have a church home? I intentionally use that terminology. She said, well, when I'm not working... I'll go to, and she named a church out on Gray Highway, or I'll go to this other church. And that, that was the end of it. But I was able to identify with Christ, and I thought, this is a one-time opportunity. I may never see this person again. And Mary saw that in this case in a far more important thing with Christ. She knew, she knew this was her last opportunity to so, show such honor. And so she was sensitive to the timing. What was her motivation? Verse 12 of Matthew 26 tells us, this may well be the last opportunity I shall ever get to bestow kindness on Jesus. I believe it was a conscious act of Mary to prepare Jesus for burial. It was an act of respect. It was an act of gratitude. It was an act of worship. It was not an act of extravagant grace, though it, uh, of waste, though it looked that way in the eyes of the disciples. And so Jesus is saying to these men, you have, y'all have missed the point. And she got it. She knew that the timing was important. Now the world, and even sometimes the religious world, the church world, can view our, our obedience as foolish and irrational and short-sighted. Don't you know you could get your cut throat, a throat cut from picking up somebody on Tom Hill and Riverside? They could poison the sandwich if you ask the wrong question. Or no. You ever tried to talk to an unbeliever about tithing? They think you're an idiot. I mean, that's the most foolish thing. Who in their right mind w would do that? You're, you want to hear how the world views missions today? Going over there and messing up their culture. You know, this imperialistic attitude going in and changing all these things. Yeah, these cultures, they really regret us going and stopping widow burning and child, child burning. You know, it kind of spins it a certain way. But if you get around missionaries, they are bright, well-educated, articulate, Katie, usually extremely gifted, but often missions is viewed as irrational and, and foolish. Why do that? So one person's obedience is seen as another person's fanaticism. Can we have faith when others do not? When Mary did what was opposed that night by most of the people in the room, it was out of faith. And it can also let you know that you may be doing what is right, though others around you, even well-intentioned believers around you, may think you're wrong. Uh, they may, may misjudge your motives. I think of our 
forefathers in the faith, Presbyterian forefathers, the Covenanters, they was, these were in Scotland. They, they broke away from the Church of England and they refused to follow a lot of the things that were being forced on them by law. And, and it, it led to the deaths of many of them. They were the Delta Force. They were the Green Berets, you might say, of the church. And John Blanchard from England, who has preached here a number of times, he, he, I remember hear, hearing him say how, from this pulpit how one time he was preaching on the western coast of Scotland and his host asked him if he would like to go and see some of the sites associated with the Covenanters. And he said he couldn't wait to go. He had not been to these places. And so they're driving around and he wanted to see where a lot of these defenders of the faith had been. And they went to a particular church and he saw, when he got out of the car, he saw up on the church, the roof, what looked to be this large chain and like a big dog collar uh, at the end of it, a metal one. And he said, what in the world is that? And, and his guide said, that that's where they hung the covenanters. Uh, Richard Cameron is known of one of those, and he was perhaps one of the greatest. He was a man who had very distinct and beautiful hands. And when he was captured by the soldiers, they chopped off his hands at the wrist and they chopped off his head and they put them in a box. And they took the box to his father in Edinburgh with a note saying, do you know who these belong to? And the father looked in the box and said, they are my sons, my own dear son. Good is the will of the Lord who could never wrong me or mine. We've been reading and hearing about the city in Iraq of Mosul. Yeah, yeah, I know that's probably not the correct pronunciation. And, and the, the seeking to retake that city from ISIS that, that came in there two years ago. And if you don't know much about that city, you should, especially as a Christian. Mosul was across the river from Nineveh. Nineveh is the city where Jonah went and preached. One of the greatest revivals in history or awakenings took place. Well, Mosul is across the river, but it grew to be as large as almost 2 million people, about 1.9 million. So they kind of became one area. There has been a Christian witness until the past two years in Mosul since the first century. One of the oldest Christian communities. It was an unusual city in Iraq because you had... Muslims, you had various sects of Islam, you had Christians. And uh, they, were, they all lived in the city, and ISIS came in, and, and now we're just finding out how many, and we're going to continue to find out how many people were murdered, how many children were executed, and how many people fled uh, when they knew that, that ISIS was coming. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ part of whom is gathered before the throne from every tribe and nation and kingdom and tongue. The last thing in the last moment I have is, is how we should view our lives as being offered in gratitude to God. So Thanksgiving isn't just a one-time thing or a once-a-day thing that we do, but our lives should be lived as expressions of gratitude, as ointment poured out for Christ. Uh, in Philippians, the Apostle Paul says, as he's contemplating whether he's going to be executed or not, he's in jail. He says, I, I view myself as a drink offering. Well, if you're not real familiar with the Old Testament, or even if you are, you may not know what a drink offering is. Here's what a drink offering was. The priest 
on the Day of Atonement would take the, the animal that had been sacrificed and they, of course, would, would burn it on this altar. And, and it was very specific directions how all this was to be done. And so while this meat is, is cooking uh, on this altar, one of the things he would do, one of the offerings that would be made would be this, this drink, this libation. It would be in a cup and he'd take it and on that sear, searing meat, he would pour that and of course it would vaporize as it hit the, the hot meat. Woo! And it would make this cloud of steam go up like that. That was the drink offering. So Paul, in looking at his own life, says, even if I'm like a drink offering, just a momentary aroma up, offered up to God, then I gladly do so. Has your service to Christ cost you anything? Has it cost you friendships or reputation or opportunities or finances? Has it appeared to others as even irrational uh, at times? Take heart. You may be in good company. Now, maybe you are irrational, and you may need some counsel from other Christians, but let's assume that's not the case, and you're following God's will, and it just seems irrational to others. Unbeliever, timing is important. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. He offers forgiveness today, now. He offers new life, now. He offers salvation, now. He offers the promise of heaven, now. Receive him and trust him. And to the believer, God has given opportunities for ministry to you that are distinct and specific and others may not see them at all. Don't let raised eyebrows slow you down. Let's pray together. Our Father, we don't know much more about Mary. We know about her brother and her sister and and how devoted she was, but she saw something, and she knew something the others didn't, and she had a knowledge of your will that this was the last opportunity she had to honor Christ before he would be crucified. We pray for sensitivity to your will. With our lives being so short, they are as a vapor here. We pray that we'd make the most of opportunities you give us to serve you. Uh, you'll present those before us today and tomorrow and the next day. And we pray we won't be blind to them, but your Holy Spirit might guide us that we would be salt and light in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.